John chapter three, verse one through three. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus responded and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice how Nicodemus comes to Jesus. We know you're a good guy. We know you're a teacher. You have some words of life. We've been moved by some of your preaching. He doesn't come to him and say that you are God. You are the Messiah. You are the King. He just says, really like listening to you and we feel like you have some power. Jesus completely ignores that statement. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, well, thank you, brother. Oh, goodness, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. He goes right past it directly to Nicodemus's heart, and he says, I got to tell you something, friend. Unless you're born again, what you just said does not matter. Doesn't matter. You can't see the kingdom. You can't know me. None of it without being born again. I think the problem with Christianity in America, the problem with Christianity in our homes, the problem with Christianity in our churches is that most of us are not born again. We are born into a family. We are born into an institution. We have adopted a moral code. We have adopted a system of ethics, but we have not been born again through Jesus alone. Meaning I haven't taken the old Brian put him on the cross, crucified him, and stepped into new life with Christ. I'm still like old Brian, and I like the things that he does, and I like the things that he brings to the table. I also like a lot of this stuff Jesus said, and it really makes me feel good to be nice to people, and it makes me feel good that I don't murder anyone, and that I have a good job, and a white picket fence, and a wife and two kids. But I haven't, if I haven't been born again, None of that matters. Look at what he says, what Jesus says in John chapter 12, verses 25 through 26. The one who loves his life loses it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and 27, Jesus says, well, Luke says, now large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, this being Jesus, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot underscore be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and follow after me cannot be my disciple. I got to tell you, as a young man, as a 20-year-old in college, these verses shook me to my core. I'm a preacher's kid. I have no memory of anything other than church. My dad came to Christ when I was four years old. He started pastoring when I was six. This is all I remember. 
I'm good at following rules. I have nearly a photographic memory. I'm good at it all. I'm a people pleaser. I'm a firstborn. I love to make people happy. I love for there to be peace in my home. I love the fact that I don't get in trouble. I love the fact that I made A's, mostly owing to that photographic memory, which was not fair to my classmates, right? I'm good at church, y'all. I'm better at church than most of y'all. I can do all the stuff. I can teach the Sunday school. I used to work with my wife and kids. I can do it all. I can run children's church. I can run vacation Bible school. I can get up here and sing. I can do it all. Jesus said, if you don't hate your father and mother and your life, if you don't, if the way you feel for them compared to the way you feel for me doesn't look like hate, you cannot be my disciple because why? You don't love me. You're good at stuff. You like church, but you don't love me. He says more hard stuff in John chapter eight, verses 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and it will set you free. The converse of that is also true. If you are not in my word, you will not know the truth and you will be in bondage. Most of us sitting here today are in bondage of our own doing because we do not know the truth. And we don't know the truth because we don't know the word. And we don't know the word because we don't read it. We don't spend time with God in it. We don't read it because we don't love him. And we don't love him because we haven't been born again. I'm making a very straightforward, biblical, logical argument, but... We hear this over and over in church, right? Like we hear it over and over and it doesn't land. We just go on doing the things that we are trained to do, just like I did as a 20 year old in college. I had no idea what I believed and no relationship with Christ at all. I, I said some magic words when I was 12 that someone said for me and I repeated after them and I was baptized and I meant it at the time, I wasn't insincere. But I didn't kill Brian and take Jesus' life. I went on walking as Brian. Look at John chapter 14, verse 21. I love using Jesus' words because a lot of times you'll talk to super Christian-y people, especially ones that have been to seminary, and they want to talk about how the apostles, well, this is their opinion, and this is what God said. This is what God said from his mouth. John chapter 14, verse 21, the one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and reveal myself to him. If you don't keep my commandments, then you don't love me. And if you don't love me, you don't have any communion or fellowship with me and the father. How do I know you don't love him? You don't keep his commandments. How do I know I don't love Christ? There's no fruit in my life that only he brings through the power of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things aren't present in my life. Guess what? I don't keep his commandments. Guess what? You can determine 
by that fruit that I don't love him. Wow. And when you have to sit and, and, and say with your own mouth, in honesty, I don't love Jesus, things will change. I put a little graphic up on the board, cute little graphic. This is how Christian life typically works, especially in the Western world and certainly in the United States of America. We're in the car, we got Jesus in the back seat. We got the little bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. I got news for you, he's the pilot, just FYI. You're in coach, you might be in the bathroom, like for real. And we get on this road and we're pursuing wealth, we're pursuing relationships, we're pursuing family, we're pursuing career, and we're pursuing health and leisure. And we've asked Jesus to sit in the back seat, go along for the ride and don't backseat drive. And then I run out of gas and I look in the back seat and go, oh Jesus, will you get the gas can and go to the gas station, get me some gas and fill my car back up? That's how we treat Jesus in our Christian life as we're pursuing literally everything else but him. And this is where the rubber meets the road. The title of the message is where the rubber meets the road, lifting up Jesus where it matters most because we can lift him up in here. We can sing, oh, for a thousand tongues and it can crescendo and that choir, that harmony. Wow, we can lift him up here. But can we lift him up where it matters most in all of these other categories? That's what he asks of us. What happens is this is what our car ends up looking like. This is what our Christian life looks like. Broke down, busted, flat tire in the ditch. And we're glibly sitting in the front seat acting like we're still going down the road pursuing Christ and we're in the ditch. Some of you are saying, Brian, this feels like hyperbole. Feels like sensationalism. I think I'm doing okay. How are we doing collectively? I've got some statistics that are startling. This is a combination of Pew and Barna research there are 247 million Americans who identify as Christian. That includes Catholics and Protestants. Only 15 million of those, or 6%, actually hold a biblical worldview. So only of the people sitting here today, if we extrapolate the statistics, and you guys all know we can manipulate statistics, but let's just play this game for a minute. Only 6% of the people sitting in this room actually hold a fundamental biblical worldview that what God says is true and this is how we live. 58% believe that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but merely a symbol, like a dove, of God's power, presence, or purity. 58% believe that if a person is good enough, they can earn their way into heaven. These are professed Christians, these are people who say, I'm pursuing Christ. I'm living the life. I'm trusting Jesus. 72% argue that people are basically good. When the Bible says, I am born into sin from birth and there is nothing I can do about it outside of Jesus. 
71% consider feelings and experiences or the input of friends and family as their most trusted sources of moral guidance. Almost every time that I talk to a young person and I ask them, what is your moral compass? What is your true north? They will name a family member, including Christians. 66% say that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. Just that you're pursuing something that sounds religious-y. 64% say that all religious faiths are of equal value. The two most popular preachers in America both believe that there is more than one way to heaven. 57% believe in karma. That's a pagan notion from Buddhism and Hinduism that something good you do will come around to you and something bad you do will go come around to you in the universe at large. 52% of Christians claim that determining moral truth is up to each individual and there are no moral absolutes. Situational ethics. I tell the truth over here, but when it suits me, I lie. And that's totally cool because I'm not a bad guy. Only 34% believe that people are born into sin and must be saved from sin by Jesus Christ alone. If we had 300 people in here, only 90 something of them would believe that. Only Jesus is the way to heaven. 0.6% of profession Christians support their churches financially. 0.6%. The ones who do contribute just 2.5% of their income. During the Great Depression, Christians in America contributed 3.3% of their income. When they reached in their pocket and found Lent, they contributed 3.3% of our income in the greatest country, in the most wealthy country, at the most wealthy time in history. American Christians contribute 2.5% of their income to the Lord's work. Average weekly giving among Christians is 17 bucks. I paid more than that for a banh mi sandwich yesterday. It was delicious, by the way. The new banh mi is open in Casey. If you like Asian food at all, get yourself over there. They also have some boba drinks that are really cool too. But it's more expensive than what Christians to the individual are giving to God's work in the world. If every Christian gave just 5% of their income, I know tithing, right, 10%, that's actually not, if you look at, at what all Old Testament people gave to the church, it was a lot more than 10%. It was approaching 30%. All right, but let's just use 10% as our number. If you gave half of that, just 5%, ministries worldwide would have an additional $139 billion annually. One statistic I don't have in here, but it's very true. If one family in each church in South Carolina adopted one child, there would be no adoption process. There would be no orphans in South Carolina. Every child in the state would have a home where Jesus is lifted up. If one family in one church, in every church in the state, would adopt one child. And yet we have a giant 
adoption system and welfare system. Why? Because I got my stuff, right? 68% of Christians believe premarital sex is morally acceptable, depending on the circumstances. Jenny and I did mentoring for a young couple who was getting married, and I was told by him, who was in seminary at the time, when the Apostle Paul talks about premarital sex, he's actually talking about deviant sex. He's not talking about just having sex outside of the bounds of marriage. Said that with a straight face as he's sleeping with his fiance, going to seminary. It's pretty awesome. Only 46% believe that the marriage of one man to one woman is God's plan for humanity. You're in the minority now if you believe it. In the church, you're in the minority. Not in the world. In the church, you're in the minority. In 1970, the U.S. marriage rate was 76.5%. Today, it is just over 31%. The divorce rate among professing Christians is 40 to 50%, which matches the world's divorce rate. Conversely, it's only 18% for those actively living their faith. If you're actively pursuing your faith and attending church with your family, you have a 82% chance of staying married. That's strong. I mean, it's a one-to-one relationship almost. Go to church with your family, spend time with God, probably won't get divorced. 95% of Americans who are, say they are Christians have used marijuana. 33% have used cocaine. 30% have used opioids. believe it's good to have a drug-induced religious experience. 60% of practicing Christians consume alcohol regularly. 41% drink hard liquor. 47% report that they have attended church services high or hungover. Only 28% believe that the best indicator of a successful life is consistent obedience to the Lord Christ. I would say that car is in the ditch with a flat tire, engine smoking. We are not lifting up Christ where it matters the most. In fact, we're only lifting up Christ on average here. Here's what my graphic should look like. We should be in the car pursuing Jesus as hard as we can while bringing all of those other areas of our life into subjection to chase him. Our wealth, our relationships, our family, our career, our health and our leisure should all be vehicles with which we pursue Christ. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, married, single, divorced, working a high dollar job, working a blue collar job, all of those things should be brought under subjection to the Lord's will so we can pursue Jesus. So how do we do this? How do we pursue Jesus with our wealth? John chapter three, verse 27 through 30 says this. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, you guys have all heard this, what 
there your heart is. Wherever I spend my money, that tells me what I love. My dad used to say from the pulpit, show me your bank account and I'll tell you what you love. I can do it in about 15 minutes if you'll show me your bank statement. Show me your credit card bill. I can tell you exactly what you love. And you can tell yourself what you love because where you're spending your money, that's what you love. Jesus said it with his own mouth. In fact, the Bible spends three times more time talking about money than it does any other subject matter. You know why? Because God knows it's gonna destroy you. It's gonna ruin you. And you're gonna chase it. You're not gonna give it to him. It belongs to him anyway. And he knows it's gonna ruin you. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verses six and seven. Now I say this, the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And the one who sows generously will also reap generously. Each one must do just as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So how do I lift up Christ in my wealth and in my finances? I, I would keep you long past lunch today and you'd all be really, really irritated to go through all of the minutia of how we can do this, right? But let's talk about it at a high level. First of all, I can acknowledge that it's all his. Secondly, I can give him the first fruits. I can give him what I get first and then figure out how I'm gonna pay for the rest. Most people sit down, pay for all their stuff and they go, all right, how much can we give God this week, honey? Oh, we're out, okay, good. And I can do it cheerfully. I can come here excited to give something to what God's doing in the world. I can be excited when I write a check to Tim and Holly Anderson in Peru, working among indigenous peoples, took their whole family down there. The only missionaries in Peru who stayed during COVID. I love writing checks to Tim and Holly because they're doing God's work in God's place where he is, that's where they are. And he says, if you're working where I am, you're my servant. That's how we can honor God with our finances, but not just in the giving. We like to keep it to that. We like to get the 10%. We need to go find that verse in the Old Testament, take it out of context. I'm gonna give my 10% and that's good. I'm good to go. And we create a floor and a ceiling. We never give more than 10 and, and we only give the 10 out of compulsion. The Bible says you need to do what God leads you to do with your finances. Sometimes that means giving all you got giving it all away like the young widow that comes into the temple and gives everything she has in the plate. That's sometimes that's what that looks like because I'm following Christ in my life. And I don't hesitate when my neighbor says, we're out of groceries. I go to the food line and get a bag of groceries, period, because that's where God is moving. And then I can take that to them and say, hey, I brought you these because Jesus loves you and he loves me and he's given me everything. And so it wasn't much for me to go get you a bag of groceries. It means spending your money in places where it's not being abused for God's kingdom. Now, if we're gonna stop spending money where people aren't believers in the United States, we probably are not gonna buy much. We're gonna all be subsistence farmers and, and it's totally fine. So, but at the same time, 
don't knowingly keep giving money to things where it's not being used appropriately. Politicians, organizations that don't have a biblical worldview make all kind of people mad. United Way, stop giving money to the United Way, guys. If you wanna know where God's moving in this community, I can introduce you to some places. I know Nikki can, and we'll point you right to them and say, go right there, go right there and help these people with your money and stop giving it United Way where 40% of what you give goes to some administrative cost to a CEO who's making millions of dollars and to a cause you don't know not where. That's not being responsible with what God has given you and lifting up Jesus in your finances. How do I lift up Jesus in my relationships? Ephesians chapter four, verses one through three. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, I belong to him, I'm in his service. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, keeping unity and the bond of peace. If you're confused about how you should handle the personal relationships in your life, Ephesians 4, 1 and 3 tells you exactly what to do. Worthy of the calling, humility. That means I consider everybody greater than myself. And what I need out of a situation is not important compared to what others need. If I'll just walk in humility in my relationships, I'll fix most of them. Because most of my relationships, I'm trying to win. Depending on what I want out of the person. Guys, this is plain on its face. How, how do we live? How do we lift up Christ with the people that we interact with every day? This should be us. If this is not you, probably not servant of the Lord guessing you probably haven't turned your life over to him look at colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 13 so as you have been chosen of god holy and beloved put on a heart of compassion he kind of repeats what we just read same writer but look what he says down at the bottom bearing with one another forgiving each other what have you been forgiven if you are in christ See, one of our problems in America is we have a constitution that starts with the wrong phrase. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is a lie. You are endowed by your creator with no rights. He created you perfect and you spat in his face and said, I'll do it my way. And you fell into sin and that eliminated your relationship with that God and all of your rights. Your right outside of Christ is to die on this mud ball and spend eternity without God in a very real hell where he does not exist and nothing he created exists. That's your right. What you have is a privilege through Christ 
to live a life that belongs to God, to spend eternity with him and to lift him up high while he has left you here. That is your privilege as his child because he's forgiven you of everything. How do we lift up Christ in our families? Deuteronomy chapter six, verses one and two. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you may do them in the land where you are going over to take possession of it so that you and your son and your grandson will fear the Lord your God to keep all his commandments and his statutes. Down in chapter six, Moses writes in verses six and seven, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, in our case, drive. Some of you may still walk. When you lie down and when you get up. My wife pointed this out when we taught this together at our church. That's all the time. There is no time that's not captured in these categories except when you're sleeping. And then it even says when you lie down. I guess we're presuming that we're not asleep because we can't talk about the Lord while we're sleeping. But pretty much every waking minute, the Bible says that God's word should be on your heart and you should repeat it within your family. And that's not just your children and your wife, those of you who are single, that's your brothers and sisters, that's your mom and dad. Everybody in your family, God's words and his love and his commandments should be on your lips so that when a family member comes to you and says, what should I do? You don't give them an off the cuff opinion that you got off Oprah. You say, let's look at what God's word says. Do you know what God's word says about what you just asked me? No, okay, well, I'm gonna give you some verses to read and then you go read those. And if you'll come back to me after you've read them, we'll discuss what God says about your problem. That's how you lift up Christ in your family. And you keep doing the things that we talked about lifting up Christ in your relationships. You've all heard the next verses, Ephesians 5, 25 and 33. Husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Translated sacrificial, undeniable. Go all the way as far as you have to go love. We ain't cutting it, guys. We ain't getting there. It's your responsibility to lift up Christ in your family. God has made you the high priest in your home. Your job, there are some awesome women sitting in this room. There are some women in this room who love Jesus deeply and serve him. They will do it if you won't. But if you don't, all of these statistics that I read, all of these ills that we perceive in society will not change. Verse 33, as for you individually, each husband is to love his own wife the same as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. That's how we lift up Christ in our home. Ephesians 6, one through four, children obey your parents in the Lord. Didn't leave you out guys. Children obey your parents, honor your father and mother, treat them with respect. Treat them the way you would want to be treated, the way Christ commands you to treat them. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Dad, stop frustrating your kids. Stop sniping your kids. Using sarcasm with your children. Setting them up for failure. Yelling at them when they make kid mistakes. For the love of Christ, please stop. Lift Christ high in all of those situations. All you have to do is lift him up. And he said, I'll take care of your children if you'll lift me up in your home and not lift yourself up. What about in your career? God didn't leave that one out either. Colossians chapter three, verses 22 to 24. Slaves. In case you were wondering which category of worker he's talking about here, he starts by speaking to slaves who are in bondage and have no choice but to work for the people they're working for. Slaves, obey those who are your human masters in everything, not with eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for people, knowing that it is from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. How do I lift up Christ in my career? By working for him and not for my boss who irritates the fool out of me. By not sniping my coworkers and gossiping at the water cooler and maneuvering myself to get in a position for that promotion over Betty because I'm more important than her and frankly, better looking. That's not, that's not the way of Christ. I had a heartbreaking conversation with a young man about his boss who ran around spewing Bible verses and going to church and handing out tracts and treated everybody in his place like garbage. Do you think any one of those workers wants to know Christ? Nobody wants to know Christ after watching that. We have to lift up Christ where we work. You spend the majority, if you have a job, God bless all you people that are retired. I'm trying to get there. If y'all can help me figure out how to do it for 62, come see me right after the service. If you are working a job, for real, just lift up Christ where you work. Do it honorably as if you're working for Lord Jesus himself. Because you are. You're his representative in the world. He says, you're my ambassador. I left you here after I saved you to represent me in the world. So all of those coworkers can see what I look like and have an opportunity to come to me. But we're worried about that raise or that promotion or something that my coworker said to me last week that I'm still milking and acting like I'm having a bad day. How do I lift up Jesus in my health? I ain't getting into this in this service but I am gonna give you the high level overarching command. Romans chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God and in his power, present your bodies, your bodies. He doesn't say present your mind or your chi or your spirituality or the things that you're willing to cut loose. He says, present your bodies as a living and holy Sacrifice. Anybody know what the word holy means? Sinless, without blemish, set apart, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. It's not singing in the choir. 
which is great. Lifting our voices to God, absolutely awesome. He commands us to do it. But that's not what he says is your spiritual service of worship. He says, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to him, is your spiritual service. So if I'm gonna lift up Christ in my body, I stop dancing around in the raindrops of what might be acceptable. And I start going, does this honor Christ? Is this a holy and acceptable sacrifice to him? So when I sit down and I try to parse the Greek in what the apostle Paul says about whether or not I should sleep with someone I'm not married to and I have not made a covenant promise to that person, I can stop dancing around in the Greek and go, is this presenting my body, which I'm using to dishonor another person, is this my spiritual act of service to the Lord Christ who hung himself on a cross and rose again for me? And then that easily answers your question. Should I put this vile poison in my body? Question answered. And we can dance around the raindrops. Well, the Bible doesn't really say don't drink alcohol. I think right here it just says don't be drunk. Okay, let's play that game. It's poison. In fact, what's really cool is we got some really new studies that say drinking alcohol is almost never good for you under any circumstances. That's secular studies out of the University of Washington in Seattle. Not me, that's not in the Bible. So should I put poison in my body? Pretty easy answer. In my opinion, everybody's mad at me now. You know why you don't take two Baptists fishing with you? I grew up Baptist, I can say this. If you only take one, he'll drink all your beer. That's what the world thinks about us as believers. That's, that's a joke the world made up about believers. Goodness. And I'm not just gonna deal on substance abuse. Let's talk about all the other stuff we do with our bodies and where we go and what we participate in what we allow our eyes to see, what we allow our ears to hear. I always laugh because my wife is a preschool teacher and we have many preschool teachers here. You guys run an excellent preschool. Remember the little song, be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little ears what you hear for the father up above is looking down in love. That means my whole life, everything that I have in this body, I give to him. And I don't ruin this vessel because he made it. I don't destroy this vessel. I don't take unnecessary risks with this vessel because he made it for me. And I owe it to him because he rescued me from eternal darkness to present my body as a sacrifice to him. And finally, the one we don't wanna talk about, how do I lift up Christ in my leisure, in my time, in my me time? How do I lift up Christ? The Apostle Paul gives us some guidance here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, all things are permitted, but not all things are of benefit. Because I'm in Christ and because he's rescued me with his blood, the Bible says that nothing can separate me from his love. Nothing on earth, nothing in heaven ever can separate me from his love. So because of that, I, can't, I don't have to fear anything, but all things that I do are not beneficial. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Do not offend Jews or Greeks, that's everybody, or the church of God, just as I also please everyone in all things, not seeking my own benefit, 
but the benefit of the many so that they may be saved. Because that's the only reason he left us here after we trusted Christ is so that others would come to him. And if I don't look like him or act like him or lift him up in the way I live my everyday life, how can I possibly expect those around me to come to him? I can't, it's folly. Leonard Ravenhill, I love that last name. Theologian, this is written on his tombstone. Are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? Did Christ hang himself on a cross and suffer the most excruciating death imaginable and sit in the tomb for three days and rise again so that I can abuse my kids, so that I can cheat on my wife, so that I can abuse substances, so that I can be ugly to my coworkers, so that I can spend my money everywhere but on God's work. Is that what he died for? Did he die for me to come in here on a Sunday morning and feel pretty cool? Because I came in here and I did my duty. I was able to somehow manage my way out of bed and find clothes and get in here. Is that what we're satisfied with? The statistics tell us that we are. The question is, is that you? So stop thinking about statistics and everybody else. Think about you. We were not saved so that we could go on living a life that looks like everybody else's. God did not rescue us so that we could sit in a garage, all nice and polished and shiny, with good coats of armor all everywhere and never get on the road. He also didn't rescue us so that we could race that car at breakneck speed toward fulfillment in literally everything else but him. You've been saved for a purpose. That's clear in God's word. And the fulfillment of that purpose is the only acceptable reaction we can have to the gift of salvation we've received. It's the only acceptable reaction. Paul says it. It's your, it's your gift. It's, it's, it's your service. It's your act of worship. It is the love for Christ that fills our tank. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that helps us lift Christ up in every circumstance. We have an obligation, a debt to him. Paul says, I'm his slave because of what he's done for me. We're compelled to, for the one who laid down his life for us to magnify his name. And sometimes we sing that word too much, but you guys know what magnify means. It means I take a magnifying glass and I go over and I hold it on the name of Christ so everybody can see it. And when I'm magnifying his name, they stop looking at me. I don't want them to look at me. I am broken and fallible and ugly without him. He says, I'm like dirty rags without him. I want them to look at him because that's what God looks at when he looks at me. Praise Jesus, he does not look at me. He sees the blood of Christ covering me and that's what I want people to see when I'm around them. What should we do? That's always the great question, right? Speaking 101, any of you who ever took speech, right? I tell people what I'm gonna tell them. I then tell it to them. I then tell them what I told them. And then I tell them what I want them to do as a result of what they've heard. That's persuasive speaking. 
One of my favorites recently, it's a meme, Princess Bride, Indigo Montoya. You know, the, the main points of persuasive speaking. Introduction, hello, my name is Indigo Montoya. Appropriate background information, you kill my father. Consequences, prepare to die. Right? That's where we are. It's, it's pretty straightforward. What should we do? Guys, I'm begging you, give your life to Jesus. Don't do like I did for 20 years and play games and memorize Bible verses and go to church and be the clean cut little preacher's kid who did not know Jesus, who got dunked in water. Don't do that. Don't say magic words and rely on that to save you, even if you meant them when you said them. Jesus says with his own mouth that magic words don't get it. It is a full surrender of your life to him. All of it, everything. Put it on the table and give it to him. Push it over to his side. Go all in. I'm begging you. Those of you who have trusted him and you are trying to serve him, keep doing it. Ramp it up. Double down. Take your watch off and throw it in the pile. Those of you who've been playing the game, I will go to that fellowship hall and I will sit here the rest of the day to tell you how you can surrender your life to Christ and how you can lift him up in everything you do. I might need somebody to bring me a sandwich. I eat a lot for a 47-year-old guy who still has a really high metabolism, but not as high as Todd DeFries. Claim Jesus as Lord, love his word, live it out. Don't rely on the church. It's not Dow's job to make you a better Christian. Dow is spending time with the Lord trying to be a better Dow. You know God's word, you know where to find a Bible. If you don't, I'll give you the directions to Mardell or Walmart. Gosh, they still have Bibles at Walmart, shockingly. When the apostle Paul met the Lord on the road to Damascus, he is struck blind in the dirt. His face goes in the dirt and he comes up spitting sand. That's how the Lord met him. And he doesn't whine, oh Jesus, why have you struck me down? His first question is what? Lord, what do you want me to do? And I can tell you in no uncertain terms based on God's word, if you have met the Lord Christ and you have given your life to him, everything will change. And you will say in no uncertain terms, what do you want me to do with all of it? I will do it. The question is not, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life or what should I do with my life or what career should I pursue? The question is, God, here's everything. What do you want me to do with that? And then do it. And I promise you, your family will change. Your marriage will change. Your friendships will change. The people you work with will change. Your neighbors will change. Everything will change. I'm not promising you you're gonna get wealthy. I'm not promising you you're gonna be healthy. I'm not promising you that you're gonna be on TV or that anybody's gonna give a care in the world about your name. But what I am promising you is that you will trust Christ with all of it. He will change you and your family and they will spend eternity with him. 
So what are we waiting for? I then shall live as one who's been forgiven. I'll walk with joy to know my debts are paid. I know my name is clear before my father. I am his child and I'm not afraid. So greatly pardon. I'll forgive my brother and the law of love I gladly will obey. God, your kingdom come around and through and in me. Your power and your glory, let them shine through me. Your hallowed name, may I bear it with honor and may you change the world because of me. The bread of life, may I share it with honor and may you feed a hungry world through me. I hope that is your prayer. When I get done praying, I'm gonna stand down here. I grew up in a church where invitation was given every Sunday and we sang just as I am because that's what Billy Graham did. You call this what you want. If you want to come talk to me about surrendering your life to Christ or how you already have, but you're not living it, I would love to talk to you. My wife is here. She would love to talk to you. There are others here who would be glad to talk to you. And I am not kidding. I will stay here as long as I need to. If you want to talk to me about how you can lift up Christ in one of these areas, come up, get my contact information, I'll meet with you. So will that beautiful lady right there. And we'll sit with you as long as we need to because there's nothing else that matters. What I have for lunch doesn't matter. The fact that I'm going to help a friend install a pool liner this afternoon, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that you come to Christ and spend eternity with him and I love you so much because he loved me so much that we'll stay here till we get it right. If you're online, email Holland Avenue Baptist Church. They'll hook you up.